Morning, guys. Well, you can see my my secretary's pitiful attempt at artwork there. I mean, that's look at that. That's what the computer can generate. You see, uh, you see this right here. See, that's that's what the computer generates. Now, look at that. Now, you just tell me which you prefer. There we are. We're in the throne room of God. Uh, John has been communicating to the churches who are being persecuted, who are having all kinds of problems in their churches. Some of them are fighting with each other. Boy, I'm sure glad we got over with that in the first century. And uh, some of them are dealing with some of the immorality in their culture. Uh, some of them are, are having all kinds of problems uh, with leadership in their church. Just a mess. And then on top of all that, they're being opposed by the, one of the most powerful governments in the history of the world. they got problems. And then we saw... Uh, the Lord, after giving him a message for each of those churches, telling them, look, if you'll overcome, uh, you will enjoy all the benefits of everlasting life. And that's been promised over and over again to those churches. We've seen that John himself is, in his vision, is taken right up into heaven, right up into the place, the control room, if you will, right up into headquarters to see where the, the fulcrum uh, that controls all of life is. And uh, we, it's a mighty vision, as we saw in Revelation chapter 4. There's a throne there. And we've seen that things are being controlled from on high. And John has a vision of that. And the angels and all the heavenly hosts are singing to him who was and is and is to come, him who created all things and for whom and by whom they have their very being. Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 5, frankly, gentlemen, I think we're coming to one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. And it's unfortunate that so few of us, uh, because of we, we, we fear Revelation, I told one of you at 6 o'clock this morning, I'm going to my office to see if I can figure out what this thing is all about. <laughs> but uh, we come to Revelation 5 and we don't enjoy it as we ought to. It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible because we are confused about Revelation. And uh, we'll remain a, a little confused for the rest of life, I'm sure. But hopefully one of the things that we do in this study together this year is get this book back because if nothing else, you need this chapter back, this Revelation chapter 5. Now, John is in heaven. He sees the throne of God. He hears the songs given to God as the one who created everything, who is holy, who sustains all things. It's a very powerful vision that he's having. And then, uh, to add to that vision, something very, very important happens. We pick it up at the very first verse of chapter 5. Let's read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb 
be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You know, uh, in the, the news over these past uh, two years, you know, we've just had a series of bombings and disappointments, and it seems that it's just growing in its intensity. Yesterday, seven more Iraqis were bombed in front of a mosque, and was it the day before that or two days before that? Uh, folks were bombed right, out the green, right outside the green zone. It's just day after day, and the question that keeps arising is, you know, what's the plan? Uh, how are we going to extract ourselves from that place? How long is it going to take? Uh, what's this leading to? What's the end game? Uh, you hear all those kinds of questions. And, you know, it's really a picture of, of life uh, because sometimes in your own personal life, things end up that way. You get bombed. Uh, I don't mean that with alcohol. I mean people are giving you a hard time. I guess you do get bombed sometimes. That's bad too. But you get all these bad things happening to you. And sometimes you want, what is the end game? What's the deal here? I thought, I thought when I walked the aisle and went down in front of my church and professed my faith and received Jesus Christ as Lord, everything was going to work great for me. And some of you guys who haven't ever done that are looking at these poor slobs who are Christians who are saying, you know, they thought things were going to work out for them. Just look at them. You know, they got all these problems. And to add to all their natural problems that they share with all of humanity, uh, they are marginalized in society, looked at, looked at as... Uh, narrow-minded fundamentalists and, and all the rest and face the persecution of the world. And what's the end game? Where is this headed? Well, this was exactly what the church in the first century was asking because they were having all kinds of problems and they want to know where is this headed? We know that we had a resurrected Savior. We know that He gloriously ascended into heaven. Uh, we were told that, that He went to the right hand of God. But what is the deal here? Why, if he is in charge, if he is Lord, why is life so lousy? And they had a right to ask that question, didn't they, humanly speaking? When you look at their life in the seven cities that we've examined in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, that's the reason that this chapter is so important. It answers that question about what the end game is, what's going on, what's the strategy, what's the big game plan. So let's take a look at it. Uh, the first thing we're going to, we're really divided in half. The first seven verses, uh, I want you to notice that Christ has been given the highest place. Verses 1 through 7. There's one thing that's made very clear in the, these seven verses. It is that Jesus Christ has been given all authority, all power, all dominion. He's been given the highest place. And in fact, there's, it's unmistakable that in this passage, He is equated with God. He is worshipped as God. Uh, the uh, descriptors of Him are the same as, as the Father on the throne. They are worshipped together. Uh, nothing could be clearer than that, that in Revelation chapter 5. Now, the first thing let's look at is God has decreed all of history. Now, why do we say that? Look at verse 1. John says, He saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll all about? Well, in the Old Testament, you'll find the idea of a scroll. And if you'll keep your finger there in Revelation 5, turn back to Daniel. You may as well turn the pages over in Daniel because we're going to have to keep going back to him because so many of the images in Revelation come from Daniel and other places too. But first of all, you'll notice in Daniel chapter 12 that you will have a reference to a scroll. Daniel's given all kinds of visions about the... Ancient of days and the Son of Man who's going to come to rule, going to conquer all of the kingdoms of this world, and that He'll be the last kingdom standing and so on. And then He says this is going to come to pass in uh, times, times and half a time. In other words, it'll, it'll come to pass in the future in a, in a given, after a given period. And let's look at Daniel 12 and see what he says about the scroll. He says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. It will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in a book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up, 
and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Uh, okay, then we can look at... Um, uh, let's see, there's another mention of the scroll there. Um, well, let's leave it at that. He, he says, you can see at the end, verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. You'll see those numbers recur in uh, Revelation. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay, so you see, uh, Daniel is being told that uh, he's given a vision for what's going to happen, but then he says, look, uh, the end times are going to be tied up in this scroll. They're a mystery. They're not going to be disclosed yet, what it's all about. It's going to be sealed up. Now, you just go your way until the end. And when the end times come, you will receive your allotted inheritance, which is to say all the saints will get what is theirs at the end time. So this scroll is clearly speaking about future history that is in God's mind, that is decreed, but is not made known yet to human beings, not made known to His church. And also, it is a scroll that will be opened when the end times come, when the final uh, conclusion of history is being inaugurated. Let's look now at Ezekiel. That's one book before Daniel. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 2, and you'll see a mention of a scroll here. And Ezekiel is called to go preach to the people who are being pretty stubborn, and he's told he's going to be made more stubborn than they are. Sounds familiar when you think about a lot of preachers we know. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, Ezekiel says, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So once again, here's a scroll. What's, what's the meaning of the scroll here? It is the Word of God to His people telling them the judgments that are going to come upon them as a result of His visiting them. So the scroll here, you see it's written on both sides, just as the scroll is in, the, in Revelation that we read about. It's a scroll that's going to reveal judgment. Turn back to Isaiah. About three more books in your Bible from there. Isaiah chapter 29. And you'll see a mention of a scroll again. And this will be the last one we'll look at on this. Just to give you an idea that this is not an unknown concept. Once again, in Isaiah 29, God is pronouncing judgments upon His own people. And He mentions a scroll. Look at verse 11. Isaiah 29:11. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will answer, I can't. It is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. So once again, the idea with all we're mentioning here is in Isaiah. Once again, it's a common figure. And this was centuries before Daniel where the Word of God is in a scroll and it's sealed. So now we come to Revelation chapter 5 and we see this scroll. What is the meaning of it? It's the history of God that is mysteriously uh, undisclosed and unavailable to us. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. You can make a million dollars and get run over by a truck. You don't know which it is. But God knows. And it's in the scroll. Now, it's not been made known to you because the scroll hasn't been opened for you. And we're told in the Scriptures that, uh, for example, in Psalm 115, God lives in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Uh, David says in Psalm 139, uh, All my days were ordained for me before one of them came to be. So all your days are ordained. Your death is ordained. And the way you're going to die is ordained. There's no sense in worrying about it. It's already been decreed. <laughs> as, as one guy said when he fell, the, the Calvinist was going down his steps into the basement. And he fell and had a horrible fall and broke his left leg. And he got up and he said, glad that's over. <laughs> so 
There's comfort that comes with it. It can also blow your mind when you think about it. But even in Ephesians, when Paul is talking about the redemption of God, he says, In Him we have been chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in accordance with the purpose of His will. Everything. Every blade of grass. Every moment in your life. Ordained. Now, God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's what the Bible says. And here we have the scroll which symbolizes that decree. It's in the hand, the right hand of the king. It's his decree, and it will come to pass. So everybody's going, hey, what's in the scroll? <laughs> and that's exactly what John's feeling. Back to Revelation. That's what John's Why? Why does John care so much? He wants to know what's the end game. Where's this whole thing headed? Life doesn't look like it's going to turn out so well for the Christian people, people who are followers of Jesus. What's in the dadgum scroll? <laughs> and so you, you look in heaven, and there it is. We need a worthy one who will disclose it and who will execute it. The deal is, if you have, when the scroll is opened, we saw this from Daniel, we're going to wait until the end times, people of God, When the end times come, the scroll will be opened, which means God is going to show us the end game and He's going to bring it to pass. In other words, that end game will be inaugurated at the opening of the scroll. So we will be in the end times. And we will now have what was a secret be a public secret. Everybody's going to know about it because the scroll will be opened. That's the deal. So what we've got to have is a worthy one to open it. And you see that in verses 2 through 4, the angel is declaring who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. No, you know, no mere doofus can come up and handle this. Who's going to do it? And then we're told in verse 3, no one was found worthy. Now look at John's reaction in verse 4. He weeps and weeps because no one was found worthy. Why does he weep? Because the church is left in confusion without direction, without hope, left in despair. You know, the greatest problem in Memphis, Tennessee is not crime. It's not pornography. It's not drugs. It's not a poor educational system. The biggest problem in Memphis, Tennessee is despair, lack of hope. If you want to help Memphis, Tennessee, you find some kid that needs encouragement and hope, and a lot of you are involved in ministries throughout this city to help kids know that there's a way to live a meaningful life. There's hope for them. It's amazing, the power of hope. And you could be living in pretty rancid circumstances, but if you know there's light at the end of the tunnel, it's amazing what human beings can do when they have hope, when they believe there's some possibility of working their way through this, and they really believe it's possible. You will find an incredible response by human beings. And so one of the things we need to do in this city, gentlemen, is help to give a new generation, hope. There's a way out of poverty. There's a way out of brokenness. There's a way out of poor education. You can do it. And uh, so hope makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world of the church. What in the world are we doing if we have no hope? Look at all this money you're spending. Look at all these mission trips you take. Look at all the effort you give. Look at all the church services you're going to. Think of all the time you've wasted if there's no hope. And so John just breaks down and sobs because it doesn't make any sense to him, the sufferings of God's people. And then we find there is one worthy. Christ is worthy in verses 5 through 7. And he is first of all presented as a lion in this way. In verse 5, one of the elders, one of the elders, not the angel, but the elder said to his fellow elder John, Uh, He says, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Look at this. He's He's a lion of the tribe of Judah, just as predicted in the Scriptures. He is of the root of David. That is, he's coming from the dynasty that was predicted in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he has triumphed. There's that word, Nike. He's the Nike And we saw in chapters 2 and 3 that we were told we were supposed to be the Nikes. If you will overcome, that is, be a Nike, if you'll be a triumphant winner, then you will have 
the crown of life, and so on. And here we're shown, here's the one who's triumphed. He's the Nike. He is the, the lion after the tribe of Judah. So there is one worthy in heaven, and he is a lion. But then notice that not only is he a lion, but he is a lamb in verse 6. And this is the shock of all of it. That this one who we are told is a lion, John looks, and he actually turns out to be a lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So John is told it's going to be a lion, which would be exactly what one would expect. The triumphant, ferocious, powerful lion will come and take the scroll. But then what is it that comes to take the scroll? It's not a lion. Well, it is a lion, but it looks like a lamb. Go figure that. And what is this lamb? It's one who looks as though he's already been slain, but he looks like he's been slain, but he's standing. Go figure. Slain lambs are lying down. This slain lamb is standing up, speaking of the resurrection. And what are we told? He has seven horns. He has seven horns. What does that mean? Well, we can look throughout the Old Testament. The language of a horn is very clearly the language of power. And the number seven, of course, we see throughout Revelation, which is a number that speaks of perfection or completion. And here is perfect power. Power come to its fullness and its completion in this lion who looks like a lamb who has been slain. So you have this omnipotent being. Perfect power. Omnipotence. Then we're told he has seven eyes. And what does that mean? Omniscience. Because eyes speak of knowledge. And uh, it speaks of the seven spirits of God, or that is the Holy Spirit of God, who is omniscient. and goes throughout the earth. And here this being, seven horns, seven eyes, omnipotence and omniscience, who comes to take the scroll. And furthermore, He is Lord, because we are told He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. He is able. He is in charge. He is powerful. So that is what happens in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 5. Gentlemen, uh, some time ago I was uh, reading, I I love Jonathan Edwards, and there are two volumes in the Banner of Truth edition. And as old Dr. John Gerser used to say, he he used to say about these two volumes, and his his were so used that they were all taped up and the pages were falling out. And he, He was an Edwards scholar. And he said, the most wonderful thing about these big books is that the print is so small. (laughs) because <laughs> so much Edwards in each one of these volumes. The print is small. Some time ago I was reading a, a, a sermon entitled The Excellency of Jesus Christ. It's one of the... I mean, Edwards' sermons on heaven and on Christ are absolutely unreal. Edwards, as you, you know, lived in the 18th century uh, during the Great Awakening in New England. Uh, he was one of the leading preachers in Northampton and just a very, very fine scholar. He ended up as a young man right before he died being the president of Princeton University. And uh, Edwards had to be one of the, uh, the greatest minds ever in the history of our country. Uh, he was a philosopher, a theologian, and just, uh, just one of the greatest thinkers of all. And if you're interested in him, a couple of summers ago, I was reading <clears throat> uh, his biography that was just published by Dr. George Marsden. If you're looking for a good biography on Edwards, Marsden is wonderful, especially if you like to dabble in philosophy, uh, Marsden will show you how Edwards was not only on the cutting edge of theology, but he was on the cutting edge of Enlightenment philosophy and how it was moving into a democratic age. Uh, he really was a founding philosopher for us. But in Marsden's biography, it doesn't say here in these volumes, but in Marsden's biography, he mentions this sermon. And I was very interested to see that Edwards wrote this sermon when he was 21 years old. I was <laughs> just going, good heavens. This is a great sermon. Here's what Edwards is saying. He's saying that the, the excellency of Jesus Christ is seen in what he calls the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Christ. He says that, there, that is that you have coming together diverse excellencies which seem to be 
contrary excellencies, but they come together in Christ. And he says, uh, the greatest example of this is in Revelation 5. He says, here you have one who is called a lion, but he looks like a slam lane, a lamb, slain lamb. And here, let me just read some of this for you. There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension. Christ, as He is God, is infinitely great and high above all. He is higher than the kings of the earth, for He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heaven. So great is He that all men, all kings and princes, are as worms of the dust before Him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket and the light dust of the balance. Yea, and angels themselves are as nothing before Him. He is so high that He is infinitely above any need of us, above our reach, that we cannot be profitable to Him, and above our conceptions, that we cannot comprehend Him. And yet, He is one of infinite condescension. None are so low or inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. He condescends not only to the angels, humbling Himself to behold the things that are done in heaven, but He also condescends to such poor creatures as men, and that not only so as to take notice of princes and great men, but of those that are of meanest rank and degree, the poor of the world, such as are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise. Christ condescends to take notice of beggars and people of the most despised nations. In Christ Jesus is neither barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free. He that is thus high condescends to take a gracious notice of little children. Yea, which is more, His condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of the most unworthy, sinful creatures, those that have no good deservings and those that have infinite ill deservings. Such a conjunction of infinite highness and low condescension in the same person is admirable. We see by manifold instances what a tendency a high station has in men to make of them to be of a quite contrary disposition. If one worm be a little exalted above another worm by having more dust or a bigger dunghill, how much does he make of himself? What a distance does he keep from those that are below him? And a little condescension is what he expects should be made of much of and greatly acknowledged. Christ descends to wash our feet. But how would great men, or rather bigger worms, account themselves debased by acts of far less condescension? And then he goes on to talk about these conjunction of traits. He says, He is infinite in glory, but lowest humility, infinite majesty, transcendent meekness, deepest reverence toward God, but equality with God, infinite worthiness, but great patience under suffering of evil, exceeding spirit of obedience, but with supreme dominion over heaven and earth, absolute sovereignty, and perfect resignation before His Father's hand, self-sufficiency, yet entire trust and reliance on God. And though His infinite condescension thus appeared in the manner of His incarnation, yet... His divine dignity also appeared in it. And he goes on to say, yes, He was born or conceived in the womb of a virgin or of a peasant woman, but He was conceived by the Spirit. So you see once again the condescension and the exaltation. He says, this admirable conjunction of excellencies remarkably appears in offering Himself up as a sacrifice for sinners in His last suffering. So what He says is, this reaches a crescendo when you get to the sufferings of Christ on the cross, here you have the lowest condescension of a human being laying his life out naked on a tree, nails in his hands and his feet, spear in his side, thorns on his head, spittle running down his face, and yet there you have the greatest expression of the glory of God ever beheld by men. He says there is where this glorious 
conjunction of diverse excellencies comes to be in the Savior. And there it is, the Lamb of God who is slain. But the Lion of the tribe of Judah at the same time. Well, let me close with Edward's quotations here. Because, as you know, if you've ever read Edward's sermons, he always ends with uses or application. So what? What is there that you can desire should be in a Savior that is not in Christ? What excellency is there wanting or lacking? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is venerable or winning? What is there that is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of would be encouraging which is not to be found in the person of Christ? And is not Christ a person honorable enough to be worthy that you should be dependent on Him? Is He not a person high enough to be appointed to so honorable a work as your salvation? And has not Christ been made low enough for you? And has He not suffered enough? Would you not only have Him possess experience of the afflictions you now suffer, but also of that amazing wrath that you fear hereafter, that He may know how to pity those that are in danger and afraid of it? Would you have your Savior to be one who is near to God, that so His mediation might be prevalent with Him? And can you desire Him to be nearer to God than Christ is, who is His only begotten Son, of the same essence with the Father? And would you not only have Him near to God, but also near to you that you may have free access to Him? And can you think or conceive of greater things than Christ has done? Was it not a great thing for Him who is God to take upon Him human nature, to be not only God but man thenceforward to all eternity? And would you desire that a Savior should suffer more than Christ has suffered for sinners? What is there lacking? Or what would you add if you could to make Him more fit to be your Savior? What a tremendous word. And here it is in Revelation 5. What do you want? But that you would have a Savior who is the Lion, the triumphant King of the universe, and who is so weak and humble and condescending that He would present Himself to you as a Lamb slain on your behalf. What a picture this is. Indeed, Jesus Christ is given the highest station. Now, notice secondly, that Christ then must be given highest praise. And that's exactly what you find going on in heaven. John goes up there. He sees what the deal is. He's been wondering, what in the world is the Lord up to? What is He thinking? We've been suffering. We are marginalized. We're not in control of things. What happened to the great promises of our inheritance of the land? We don't have any land. We're in exile. I'm in prison. I can't even pastor the people. What's going on? And he goes up into heaven. And he gets his head straightened out. And you know what, gentlemen? You need your head straightened out too. I do too. We have all kinds of questions. Things that we say, you know, I want to ask him about that when I get there. Let me tell you something. When you get there, you won't have any more questions because you're going to see just like he did. And what you need to do right now is to get your head in heaven and enter in with John into this vision and see what's going on. Because what has happened is the scroll has been given to Jesus Christ. He went into heaven. We, last time we saw him, he was on his way up. And he, he blessed us. Last thing he did, you can read about it in Luke 24, he took his nail-scarred hands, resurrected hands, and he lifted them out. And as he was ascending into heaven, he blessed the people. He gave a benediction upon the people, which is a marvelous picture. That's the last time we saw him. What's he doing? When he got into heaven, what he did was he approached the throne of his co-equal, the Father. And he walked before him and he got the scroll. And he took that scroll, as we're going to see in chapter 6 following, he starts to un take off the seals of that scroll. And he starts to unwind the scroll. And he's starting, to un he's starting to unravel all of the decree of God in history and all the judgments that are going to come upon the enemies of Christ and His people. And that history is already being unrolled, unscrolled right now. We're living in it. And it's happening. And so sometimes we don't know how to interpret history. We read things about what's going on in World War II in Japan and Germany. We read about what's going on in Iraq and other places of the world. We don't understand it. We don't know what's going on. But we know this. The scroll has been taken by the right hand of the Lamb of God. 
And he's in control of history. And he's working it out. And that decree of God, which was to bring that inheritance for his people in the end times, is now in operation. And I don't understand it. I can't put all the pieces together, but one day I will. But I know the end of the matter. I know the end game, and I know who's in charge. That's what we're being told here. Now, when Jesus Christ gets into heaven and he goes up and takes the scroll, what John beheld was that all heaven broke loose. If Israel was waiting for this day, if the people of God were waiting for the end times, as they had been told by Daniel, Here's the scroll. It's going to stay sealed up until the end days. If the whole church was longing for this day when Messiah would come and handle the end of history, heaven was waiting too. Spring-loaded, waiting for this moment. And what you're going to see is what happens to sentient beings when they are aware that the end times are now being played out and when they are aware that the Lion of the tribe of Judah has come to rule and to reign and to take charge, what happens in their hearts? First of all, let's look at the elders and the four living creatures. They worship Him. And we are told in verse uh, 8, verse 9, that they sing a new song. Why is it a new song? It's a new song because in chapter 4, you have the old songs. They've been singing those songs. Those are the tr- that's in the traditional hymn book in chapter 4. They've been singing these songs about God being holy for millennia, for eternity. They've been Well, not eternity because they haven't been created for all eternity. But ever since the angels were created, they've been singing about God's holiness. Ever since the angels were created, they've been singing about God as Creator because He made the heavens and the earth and He, he made the light and put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. He, he put the animals on the ground. Then He made the human beings. And we don't know exactly when He made the angels, but He made them at some point. They beheld the creation. So for a long time, they've been singing glory to God because He made everything that is. And He rules over everything that is. He is the God who does control every moment of history. So they've been praising Him out of the old hymn book for a long time. But now here's a new song. Here's one of those worship songs. going to add to your hymn book at the end. And what is it? It's about redemption. Because now, in the midst of history, God has sent His own Son. He died on the cross. We watched Him come out of that tomb. We saw Him arise into heaven. And we, the angels, were in heaven. And here He comes the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we saw His entrance into the very heavenlies. And so what do they sing? They sing that He is worthy to take the scroll. And so they give Him worship, which just simply comes from the English word worth-ship. If you worship someone, you're giving them worth. You're saying you're worthy. You're weighty. You have gravity. You are glorious. You are mighty. You are worthy of our praise. So the first thing they say is, This one is worthy to take the scroll of the end of the days and inaugurate the great end times of God and bring the inheritance to God's people. This is the one. And then you'll notice that He is the one who redeemed men. See how they say it. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. So, He died to redeem men. He's worthy. So now we sing a song of redemption that it's not just the Passover lamb that leads them through the Red Sea. Now it's the very Son of God incarnate whose blood is applied to the hearts of His people and the death angel passes over those people. So His redemption is being praised. And not only has He redeemed Israel, but He's redeemed men from all tribes and languages and peoples and nations. And this is the reason, gentlemen, for the great cause of international missions. Because it is clearly in the scroll that God intends to build His kingdom not just with one ethnic group, not just with the Israelites, not just with Americans. His intention is to redeem men from every tribe and language and people. And it is incumbent upon us to be the messengers, the angels to the rest of this world so that men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and language will come to know Him. Because that's His good pleasure. He will do it. And we want to be cooperative, submissive servants to carry out what we know to be His pleasure and His will. So we must go. You say, we've got a lot of problem at home. problems at home. Yeah, we do have a lot of problems at home. We've got a lot of problems at home. We've got a lot of problems overseas. And God is a big God and He can handle both. And He can handle you getting engaged in both. And nobody here has a right to say, oh, I'm just going to deal with problems here at home. 
Nobody has the right to say, well, you know, I'm just going to deal with problems that are overseas. I, I like to go internationally. No, you deal with both because it's his pleasure not only to take people who speak English, but to take people who speak Arabic and other languages of the world. You see it clearly. They praise him because of that. Because he has busted up the one nation mentality of the Old Testament saint that you had to be an Israelite. Now Israel itself is going to be international. And Israel is the church. So you see that he's busting up that Old Covenant mentality uh, from this very song of praise. And the elders praise him for it. And we saw last time the 24 elders could very likely be 12 from the Old Covenant, 12 from the New Covenant, and even the Old Covenant elders are praising him for this one. And then he, the redeemed will reign. What's he going to do with them? He's going to make them a kingdom and priests. Gentlemen, do you see how, how significant this chapter is? John is coming from an oppressed lifestyle. And he sees the triumphant one, the Nike, the champion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he hears the songs that the champion is going to make a champion out of us. That's our destiny. That we are going to be kings and priests of God. And we shall reign on the earth. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to be the ones to reign. Oh, says John, now I see that it's going to be through suffering that we are enthroned. It's going to be through a cross that we receive our crown. It's going to be through misery that we face majesty one day. And now it starts to come clear to him. That's the reason this old man is starting to get his blood pumping again, getting excited about it. They don't have anything to be ashamed about. I'm not the loser. I'm the winner. It's the other poor slobs who are turning Jesus down. They're the losers. They may look like the winners and they may think that I'm the loser, but it's just the opposite. This is absolutely transformational in the life of the church when they get a vision of what heaven can teach us. And God is letting John get into heaven to see it. So the elders and the four living creatures worship him. Secondly, you'll notice that the angels worship him in verse 11 and 12. They get into the act. Here's the second new song. And we're told that these angels, they in a very loud voice sing. <laughs> you know, sometimes the elders ought to sing in a little lower voice based on some of the tunes that I've heard coming out of their mouths. <clears throat> but now the angels, they can sing. And they, they'll sing out in a loud voice. So what do they sing? They sing, first of all, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. They're amazed too. They've never seen a redeemed angel. There's no such thing. Angels fall, they're gone. They're not redeemed. But these human beings, these knuckle-headed men, what is it about them? God seems to love them not only by creation, but He loves them by redemption. And He rescues them. I don't get it. But I do know this, say the angels. He's great to do it. Because we couldn't redeem them. We talked to them. We tried to protect them. We tried to urge them. We tried to plan for them. Didn't work a bit. They're so hard-hearted. They just go their own way. We angels couldn't help them one bit. But look at this. This Lamb of God lays down His blood, His life, and it absolutely transformed them. And so they sing, the Lamb who is slain. And they say, He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven descriptions. Seven gifts that are be, to be given to Him. Just as the wise men, come, wise men come and give gifts to Jesus here, the angels give Him gifts, honor, glory, wisdom, riches. Bring all that you have. Unload the universe and give it to Him because He was slain for human beings. So the angels worship Him. And then lastly, as though, as though heaven is not enough. What you find in John's Revelation, all creatures in the entire cosmos rise up to worship Him. Do you hear the echoing, the sound, the resounding praises that John is hearing? First of all, from the elders and the four living creatures. Secondly, in a, in a concentric circle just outside of them are these myriads upon myriads, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, just full of angels, singing in a loud voice. Can you imagine what that would have heard? How he would have heard that? And then, as though that's not enough, now... All of creation is rising from everywhere to praise Him. You see this in verses 13 following. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne. So to Him who sits on the throne, who's He talking about? The Father. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you see 
equal praise. Father, Son, as well as Holy Spirit. But here the Father and the Son particularly. All creation is rising up to enthrone Jesus Christ, to acknowledge Him as the one who takes the scroll and shows us history and inaugurates the end of history and rules over us. They're all giving Him praise, honor, glory, and power. It's all creation resounding in holy praise. Well, one of the things that the church has noticed through the ages is not only the contrast between the exalted lion and the humbled lamb, but creation has, or the church has noticed the contrast between the worship of those who are in His physical presence and the worship of those of us who are in an alien land. And that's where we are. This is our Jerusalem. This is what's going on there right now in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon. And we're exiled. Just like John was exiled. And we just need to notice the contrast between their worship and ours. And but yet what you find in verse 14 is the elders and the living creatures, they respond. How? The four living creatures say, Amen. That's a good word. Truly. May it be so. And you can use that word if you want to, even as a Presbyterian. <laughs> Amen. And you'll notice that the elders, they fall down. They fall down in worship, prostrate, prostrate before Him. And gentlemen, our worship is so lackadaisical as we've seen. One thing we're going to continue to see when we get these little visions of heaven is that when those, when those who see Him as He is respond, they respond with everything, every fiber of their being. And so, you know, you say, well, how can I do that? You know, I'm, I'm an insurance salesman. Or how can I do that? I'm a, I'm a school teacher or I'm a banker. It's where your mind is. In your mind, every deal you do is in the presence of this God. He is with you. This God is with you in all of His glory and power. This God in all of His condescension and humility and grace and love toward you, this God is with you. And this God has put His name on you if you're a follower of Christ. Every deal you do has His name on it because your name is on it. And there's this spirit of praise that comes from the people who have had their minds lifted into the heavenlies like John. Well, let me, let me just close with this. You know, this uh, Advent season and Christmas tide, we, we love the story of Christmas. And we revel in it because here it is. You have this amazing event with Jesus Christ, little baby, being born of a peasant woman in a feeding trough because Joseph was turned down at the local Holiday Inn, couldn't find a place to stay, knew that he, his, his wife was supposed to, be bearing, uh, supposed to be giving birth that night. She was already probably in labor pains. He was desperate. And they find the, the stall. Maybe it was a cave. That's what they say in Bethlehem. And there they have the baby with the animals all around. I mean, just think about it. You, you wouldn't want to have your, your baby that way in a filthy place like that with animals looking on on a cold winter's night. And we're all charmed by this story because of the weakness in it the vulnerability in it, the condescension that's in it. Because if there's one thing that's really clear about Christmas is that it demonstrates to us that God is Emmanuel. He has come to be with us and He's come to be with us as we are. And so we're very charmed by it. But unfortunately, so many American men leave it off right there. Isn't it great you know, that God would be so kind and gracious as to give us, either give us the real Christ or at least give us this story as part of our you know, legacy as Western men. Isn't it great to have a story like that, how tender and kind and loving God is? But gentlemen, the greatest part of the story is, and this is what John is finding out in his heavenly vision, is that yes, there was a lamb, but what he really is is a lion. That was a little cub born in Bethlehem. And he looks like a lamb, but he's a lion. And you look like a lamb. But you're one of God's lions. 
And he is working something out so great in history so that when our great prototype, our elder brother, our Lord, Jesus Christ, goes into heaven, all heaven cuts loose. All wisdom, all power, all dominion, all glory, all honor, all praise be given unto him. That's the meaning of what has happened for us. Is that the decree of God to bless his people and give them their inheritance has been inaugurated with the Christ event. Our lives are to be absolutely transformed by that because it's true. Get your head in the heavens. Realize the incarnation is the beginning of the last act. They will bring all the blessings that God intends. This is Almighty God with all of His infinite power and gracious intentions toward His people. This is the inauguration of the final act of God to bring all of His blessings upon the men whom He loves. That's your present. Hope you enjoy it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your present to us, which is much greater than we often even imagine. We're thankful that You let Your servant, John the Apostle, enter into the heavenlies to get something of this last great act and to understand it and to bring meaning and purpose and even joy to our sufferings because we know that You're working Your purposes out and that for those of us who know You and love You, all things are being worked together for the good of our welfare and for Your own glory because of Your great power and love. We thank You this Christmas season for the incarnation of our Savior. We thank You that He is a Lamb who was slain. We thank You that He's standing before the throne. We thank You that He is a Lion who rules over all of history and that He is the one now with history in His hands. We recommit ourselves to You this day and we leave here gladly under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Use us, bless us, and make us patient to wait for that glorious day when we, like the Apostle John, shall see what is true in the heavenly realms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.